0: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the middle years of the 2nd century AD, a young Greek man called Galen began to practise medicine as chief physician to the local troop of gladiators. At the age of 30, he moved to Rome, where he became a personal doctor to the Emperor Marcus Aurelius and the most celebrated doctor in the Roman Empire. Galen was one of the most prolific authors of the ancient world, a polymath who wrote not just about medicine but also about language and philosophy. More of his work survives than that of any other writer in ancient Greek. Galen was a pioneer of anatomy and the first person to identify many of the structures of the human body, and he wrote about drugs, physiology, and therapeutic methods. His teaching dominated medical teaching, both in the Arab world and later in Europe until the Renaissance. With me to discuss the life and influence of Galen are Vivian Nutton, Emeritus Professor of the History of Medicine at University College London, Helen King, Professor of Classical Studies at the Open University, and Carolyn Petit, Wellcome Trust, Senior Research Fellow in Classics at the University of Warwick. Vivian Nutton, would you tell us something about Galen's background and early life?
1: He was Galen was born in the year 129 in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the Greek-speaking half, which at that point was at its wealthiest and richest. And he came from a city called Pergamum, which at that point was undergoing a huge makeover. New temples, new public buildings and it was one of the intellectual centres of the ancient world. And his father was an architect, so he clearly benefited from all the building going on, and he intended Galen to be, I think, a public intellectual. He wanted to study... He studied classical literature, philosophy, and suddenly, when Galen was 17, his father had a dream a clear dream sent by the god Asclepius, the god of healing, which said Galen, from now on, must be a doctor. And he then began what is the longest medical education on record, ten years, first at home at Pergamum, then down the coast at Smyrna, modern Izmir, and then at Alexandria, which was the foundation of health, for everybody, the great medical school. And his teachers had studied there, and Galen goes there and spends perhaps five years. What he learnt there is unclear. He doesn't like the Egyptians, he doesn't like the weather, he doesn't like the food, He doesn't like his (laughs) teachers, but he stays. And I think he learnt three things. One was pharmacology, the second was anatomy, and the
0: third was surgery. Can you just say a little more that... A wonderful phrase, the intellectual centre. Now, what did that actually mean, the Pergamon, went... the town? What, what was intellectual centred about it? It was a place where poets, historians,
1: philosophers came, debated in public. Pergamon itself had a huge library like that of Alexandria, and it was a vibrant community, of intellectual people coming, there were contests, and Galen you mean intellectual con- I don't give yes. it, debating contest debating contests debating contests it was a wonderful place to grow up in, and Galen took full advantage
0: this dream that his father had that there was a belief then that gods spoke to human beings through their dreams that 's why he took it so seriously. much later on, Galen was going to have a dream which prevented him going to battle with Marcus Aurelius, so can you just say how Tell us a little more about the seriousness with which people took such dreams.
1: Galen and most people like him believed that the whole world was peopled by gods who could appear to you and give you instructions. And Pergamum, one of the local healing gods, is the great Asclepius. So that adds to the weight of that dream. And Galen, for the rest of his life, believed that the god had accompanied him and instructed him even on how to cure people.
0: I, I'm just pausing for a second. You've got this determined father, this great architect in this city which he's helping to build, which is one of the most glorious cities, around, and he has this one dream and changes the course of direction of his son's entire life because of it.
1: It's a fascinating story. There are other men from similar backgrounds who make the same uh, <laughs> educational story, who go to Alexandria. But nobody, as far as we know, has this amazing sort of personal relationship with the god that Galen has throughout his life.
0: Obviously, this background, Helen King, the background is is, is vital to him, and Vivian's talked about the long education. But can we dwell on this city a little Mm -hmm. more, the city of Pergamon? Can you tell us more about it?
2: Yes, Pergamon's a Greek foundation originally, and it became quite an important Greek city very early on, one of the many cities founded in Asia Minor by Greek settlers. It then had a period where its kings, the Italids, were a very important dynasty who enriched the city, who who became allies of Rome, which was a good thing for Rome, and Rome at that point liked to rule through what they called client kings, so kings who ran their own little domain but basically conformed with Roman policy and sent soldiers and joined in battles. And then... In the 2nd century, a shock moment occurred when the kingdom was left to Rome by its ruler. Rome didn't quite know what to do with it because it, it wasn't doing direct rule at that point, but it took it over, imposed taxes, generally you know, put in Roman government. So it was Romanized as well as being Greek, a major cosmopolitan centre. Then there were some falling out moments where Pergamum allied with another king, Mithridates, against Rome. And there was a moment there where they killed all the Romans in Pergamum, which is you know, not a good move, really. So when the Romans took control again, they then put a very heavy tax burden on Pergamum. But by the time Galen's born, it's come out of that. It's wealthy again. And instead of the wealth being used to fund wars, the wealth is all going into building the city.
0: Where did the wealth come from? I mean, both you and Vivian have mentioned wealth several times. Where did it come from? What were they good at? Well, they were good at farming,
1: they were good at exploiting all the natural resources, the mines, the woods, and they were good at cosying up to the Romans and getting money and kickbacks of one sort or another, and from slaves.
2: Yes, they were very good at cozying up to the Romans, and by the time that, that Galen was born, the, the city was extraordinarily rich, extraordinarily beautiful. And it's not just that it had money, it's what it did with it. So, like There's a great any other, altar
0: they built, The great
2: altar of Pergamon that's now in the museum in Berlin, which is huge, enormous, it you know, takes up a whole room. But well, on was on the, the mountainside, and the Acropolis at the top was where the palace was. They had agoras, big public spaces. They had gymnasia. They had temples, the big one of Asclepius that Vivian's already mentioned. They had everything a Greek city should have, but more. Can you tell us, is is there any way of getting an assessment
0: of the state of medical knowledge at Mm -hmm. that time, at the time when Galen was, you know, a young man?
2: The thing about medicine in Galen's period is that the main source is Galen. And actually, that's the big problem with everything we're going to talk about today. What's your source for Galen? Mm, Galen. Uh, (laughs) Tricky one. But... What Galen tells us is that medicine was very competitive in his time. That sort of fits with what we know from other sources. Lots of different theories of the body and about knowledge and how you get knowledge of the body. So do you get it from experience by trying things out? Do you get it by logically thinking things through and then doing what your logical thought process tells you? There was also a group called the Methodists. There were the uh,
0: dogmatists and yeah. the empiricists that you've me- mentioned. Yes, yes. I'm trying not
2: to give them those labels because they probably didn't call themselves that. But yeah. And
0: you've called them that in John's notes. I know.
2: Methodists, OK, <laughs> Methodists. The method was that you basically have three types of illness, constriction, relaxation and mixed. So if you've got a nasty case of constipation, it's constriction, if it's gone the other way, it's relaxation, bit of both mixed. And you can learn that instantly. I've just taught you it. So now you're a Methodist doctor. It doesn't cover a great range of things that have gone wrong, gone wrong with oh, me. But just mind. try hard. Just, just you know, <laughs> think constructively here. And Galen hated that. He said that was rubbish. You didn't. People who did that didn't learn properly. And he talked about how some people know about mathematics purely to add up their accounts. That's not what maths is about. There's a deeper maths. Same with medicine. Some people learn it just to do a quick bit of healing. Medicine is actually a much more complex subject. One of his most famous lines is that the best doctor is also a philosopher. You need to understand what's happening in the body in a deep way and relate that to the rest of the universe.
0: What was the status of medicine at that time, Helen?
2: Well, again, Galen is not a good example because, as Vivian said, he had an extremely long medical education. He was a very elite doctor um, intellectually. So doctors were at all levels of society, from young men starting out maybe family medicine where their father taught them something, slave doctors in households of of prominent Romans, doctors who were in the elite like Galen. It was a huge range of different types of people with different sorts of ideas. But uh, can you just
0: say a little more about the fact that for the rest of this programme, most of the authority (laughs) for what we're talking about comes from Galen himself, a prolific polymath, and also... As very self-assured about his own place in society and in the history of medicine.
2: Oh, yes. Galen has a very strong sense of his own importance, uh, which is one of the things people sometimes find a little bit difficult to to get a grip on. But you can say, well, it's not just Galen. In the sort of culture he lived in, you have to promote yourself if you're going to get anywhere. You have to show that you are the best. And quite honestly, Galen was incredibly good. If we believe what he tells us,
0: well, other people believe what he tells us. We, yeah. we can't go on we saying him. can't we be doubt too sceptical. can Everybody I quite around <laughs> me said he was the greatest doctor around. He lasted for about 1500 years, so <laughs> exactly. let's give him a break.
2: Exactly. <laughs> I quite agree. Let's give Galen a break.
0: <laughs> Caroline Petit, can you tell us, can you go into more detail about, about his early career as a doctor?
3: Uh, yes. Um, just like his uh, education was exceptional, uh, Galen's early career is, uh, is quite remarkable. Um, because um, upon his return from Alexandria, where he spent quite a few years uh, learning anatomy and a number of other things, as Vivienne uh, already said, um, he he was appointed um, by the high priest of, uh, in, in Pergamum um, as uh, the physician to the gladiators. Um, and he was only 28 at that time. Uh, it was his first job. And that's an exceptional fact because normally you would hire a much more experienced doctor for that sort of position uh, which is a tricky one because uh, your job is actually to keep gladiators alive (laughs) 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 it's not always easy and um, so yes so he he was appointed um, physician to the gladiators there uh, where apparently he did a tremendously good job but again he says that he, he did a good job and his contract was renewed and because he had less casualties than his predecessors um and he, he explains um this appointment um um with um saying <coughs> that he had um come back from alexandria with special skills he had already devised some new uh, treatments uh, at, at his young age so he had already some innovative ideas uh, to treat patients, especially wounds. Um, and and he, already, he already had a reputation for that in the city because some of his remedies were tried on uh, friends and relatives. And uh, so he, he already had a name, uh, uh, having just finished his uh, his training at Alexandria. Uh, and of course, uh, as Vivian and Helen pointed out, uh, he had those very special family connections um, so uh, this probably helped in his nomination uh, appointment as the physician of the Gladiators. So
0: in, sorry. So in summary, by being a physician to the Gladiators, he learned a lot about wounds, about anatomy, about the, the blood. Uh, he, he just learned a lot practically.
3: Oh, yes, yes, he tells us so. Uh, it was, uh, for him, a... a couple of years, uh, people say two years, three years, four years maybe, um, working with the gladiators. Um, uh, he was in charge not just of you know healing wounds, but also looking after them day by day, <laughs> you know, their, their training and their yes, diet. Developing his ideas yes. of nutrition and, uh, yes, and so yes. on. Yes, so, so he could observe the effects of nutrition on gladiators. He could uh, observe, of, of course, a number of wounds. And he devised some new treatments there, uh, new ways to, uh, for example, to secure um, muscles uh, in very deep cuts that uh, before him were not treated properly. So he is quite proud of uh, his achievements in this respect.
0: When he was about 30, he went to Rome, and yeah. quite soon, s- spooling on a bit, but not all that, that much, he, he, he became well-known in Rome, very successful in Rome, very well thought of in Rome, and became one of the a personal physician to Marcus Aurelius, the great emperor. Can you just elaborate that a bit more, please?
3: Um, yes, well, um, the, the reasons for his move to Rome are not very clear. Uh, Was it just ambition or was it just trying to escape some problems in his native city? Uh, We don't know. But he arrived in Rome and uh, he had um, quite a good start there uh, thanks to his family connections. Partly he he, um, was able to reconnect there with um, friends of his family like the philosopher Eudemus um, whom he cured from a, a bad disease. And uh, <clears throat> this way, he was introduced to the best uh, people in Rome, to the elite, the, the high society. And case after case and demonstration after demonstration, he, he became um, uh, one of the most prominent physicians there. But he wasn't a physician to the emperor straight away. Uh, it took no, quite no, some said time. No, a while. Uh, yes, and he, even when he worked for all the emperors, he wasn't quite. Inside the palace, was he? He was just um, called in for called difficult cases. Uh,
0: he did some cases. spectacular things. That he cured the emperor's son, Commodus, uh, and which must have been very significant for the emperor and for the, the high society in Rome.
3: Yes, uh, he wrote a book um, <clears throat> telling. Um, his most remarkable uh, achievements in this respect—it's called *On Prognosis*—and Vivian, of course, knows um, best about this uh, this work, which he has translated, edited, and commented upon. Um, but um, yes, so he, he he actually records a number of uh, cases where he had an opportunity to shine in front of the high society, and uh, he cured Commodus as a child. Um, from tonsillitis I think um, he also cured Marcus Aurelius himself who called him uh, the first of physicians and the only philosopher or something like that so uh, again we, we know this only through Galen so it, it's only his side of the story of course but uh, yes apparently he became closer and closer to the imperial cycle, uh, circle and um, and was able to Um, to shine, really.
0: We're all doubtful of of the authority of Galen himself. It's quite interesting, and yet we're talking about him and people have been talking about him for very nearly 2,000 years, often in the highest terms, but never mind. Here we go, Vivian. (laughs) Um, He was particularly interested in anatomy. Where did he get his knowledge of the body from and how much knowledge could he at that time obtain? He studied anatomy
1: at Pergamum at Smyrna with teachers who had been formed at Alexandria, And Alexandria was the one place in the ancient world where you could study a human skeleton. Not a human body, but a human skeleton. And so he learnt about bones in Alexandria, and he claims to have learnt about the inside of the body from his own surgical experience and from looking at whatever chance put in his way. We now know that there were other people at the time who were doing exactly that. He refers to somebody at the time of his grandfather who had, he said, restored anatomy. There was another man called Lycus who was carrying out public demonstrations on animals in Rome. And Galen continued that tradition, demonstrating the workings of the body on a skeleton on pointing to features on the outside of the human body and experimenting, carrying out dissections on a variety of animals, big and small, to understand how a body works. Sometimes in public. Sometimes in public. That was how he made his reputation in Rome. And he said crowds flocked to them and there were public debates there taking place and he says he got this wonderful elite audience to come, and he carried out experiments which are still valid today which were intended to give an impression of just how good an anatomist he was. Points. His most famous series was, was tying and then cutting the spine at various points to see what happened. And he could tie the neck, the, the spinal cord, of a pig or goat which made an awful lot of noise, and suddenly the the nerve is tied or broken and the pig stops squealing. And everybody could then understand that something had happened. So it's this sort of experiment in public that gave him his reputation.
0: Um, Helen, can I talk about the four humours? Now, uh, the... Can you just tell us about the four humours, where he got it from, how he developed it and how it became so closely associated with him for so long?
2: Yes, it's a really interesting thing that actually four humour theory is the big theory in Western medicine and it's Galen who puts it there. In the Hippocratic texts, there are lots of different models of the body. They're, mo- they're based on the idea of fluids. Hippocrates is
0: about 500 years beforehand. Yeah, the, yeah, great exactly. before the great Galen. doctor before yeah. Galen. Exactly.
2: 5th yeah. century, 4th century BC texts yeah. associated with the name of Hippocrates. And what these are saying is that there are the body's made up of various contributing parts. They might be hot and cold or wet and dry or fire and water, or they might be fluids. And the fluids of the four humours, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, Turn up in a particular text associated with Hippocrates, Nature of Man. Now, Galen, like everyone else in his era, was really interested in what were the genuine texts Hippocrates wrote, this great doctor, their forefather. And Galen really liked the four humour theory, so he elevated the Hippocratic Nature of Man to a genuine work of the real Hippocrates. This was the genuine Hippocratic stuff. And then that which is a really nice model of the body. It's four things, it's quite easy to grasp. And you can say that in spring, blood dominates because it's hot and it's, it's wet and it's the sort of heat and wet coming through the system of the, of the world, sort of affect what's happening in your body, microcosm, macrocosm. It's quite a powerful image. What happens to the two biles? Oh, the two biles. Well, you start off with one, so it's just three biles, three humour theory and one bile, then it gets split into yellow ones and black ones. And black bile is always the tricky one for modern medics looking back on it because we know what blood and phlegm are. Yellow bile, well, it could be something like stomach acid. Black bile, hmm, not terribly clear. Black is generally not a good colour for fluids when we look at the body. So Galen takes this as the the theory of the real Hippocrates and then runs with it. But what's interesting to me is that in Galen's text, it's not like everything's about the four humours. It's actually much more complicated. He's much more interested in patients as individuals, in knowing their history. He doesn't just say, oh, this person is a sanguine person, dominated by blood, therefore we have to do this. He's much more interested in very very individual material. He's
0: just it up into um, diet, um, drugs yes. and surgery, doesn't yes. he? In, in, first you get the diet right, then if you need drugs you do, and then if you absolutely need it you do surgery. Yes. Is he operating with that uh, triad from the beginning?
2: I think that's the triad he inherits. Um, it's the triad that certainly goes back to the 3rd century BC to a guy called Herophilus, who incidentally is the only one who did dissect human beings, he and his colleague Erisistratus, in the 3rd century BC, and whose books Galen had, all this stuff that's now lost, Galen had these materials, so he could read what Herophilus and Erisistratus said. But for Galen, it's interesting that he does do surgery. He doesn't see it as something that you leave to surgeons to do, something that is Manual and therefore beneath the dignity of a citizen such as himself, he sees it as perfectly acceptable. He'll do anything. So he has treatises where he's more interested in diet or drugs, but he also will do surgery. He's, he's holistic. He'll do anything, anything to help the patient.
0: But these four humours are mm. sort of four wheel drive of hysteria, are they?
2: They are, but they're really bigger in what comes after Galen, Galenism, where Galen gets simplified um, because, yeah. He wrote an awful lot. It's very hard to make that into one theory, but we'll come to that later.
0: Karl M.T.T., he also took a close interest in drugs, which may have begun with watching his father, who was interested in plants and the effect that plants might have on people. Can you tell us about that interest in drugs and what he did with it?
3: Well, um, Galen uh, would treat primarily using regimen uh, Dietetic Diet. yeah. measures, uh, if possible. Uh, and then, uh, if necessary, he would use drugs as well. But he was very cautious about them because he knew they were dangerous. Uh, but the first thing perhaps to to stress about um, Galen's pharmacology, um, which is a, a very big topic for him. I mean, he wrote throughout his life on, on drugs. He wrote something like, uh, I don't know, over 3,000 pages in the current edition that we have. Um, So it's a huge huge topic for him. But one thing to remember is that he he really um, builds on a huge uh, legacy here. The the tradition was extremely uh, uh, strong and and rich uh, already uh, before uh, before Galen. So he inherits all this uh, material and he tries to be innovative. Um, He believes that uh, you can actually assess the properties of drugs so he, he he puts forward a new method uh, to um to to assess those properties and use drugs in a sort of scientific manner really not just reuse drugs used by others but really try to uh, identify their properties uh, their strength, how to combine them in a scientific way and um so that's that's his uh, his uh, principles really um but he he wrote about i think over 700 simple drugs so so that's that's a huge amount of um uh, of stuff you know plants earth stones etc and uh and uh, he, his works became later the foundation of medieval pharmacology and so it's uh, it's a really important topic and he sought out him. drugs
0: from india and people brought him gifts of drugs vivian yeah,
1: he also claimed he
0: had the largest
1: collection of drug recipes in the world he said he had he got some of them from people who gave them to him. He swapped them with other doctors, and he said he had, A, the greatest collection of recipes, and, of course, as an imperial doctor in Rome, he had access to the imperial drug stores, with drugs coming in from all over the Roman world and beyond.
0: Are we always talking about
1: plant-based drugs? Almost always are plant-based drugs. And he's very keen on getting the plants in the best condition. He does use some mineral drugs, and there's a lovely story of him going down a mine to, to get uh, some form of copper sulphate. And he, But he uses these almost entirely for external purposes. Where they would work, think of what happens when you use zinc ointment.
0: Galen uses that sort of ointment for skin conditions. Use oh, it every day. The... Um, the... We have this man who uh, we got, he was prolific. I'm going to ask you about that now, Vivian. But he, he still went down mine for copper sulphate. He did the operations. He did the demonstrations. He, he was right across the spectrum, wasn't He's he? He's a
1: remarkably practical man. One of the things that strikes me is that he is a wonderful observer. He sees everything. He notices things. Sights, smells, sounds and he uses them as part of his... to add to his book learning, to add to all the things, and he then experiments.
0: You talk about, in your notes, one, is it to do with the brain of a pig where you opened up and something there that he's, he saw which was extraordinary, given he didn't have uh, any technical instruments to get there?
1: Two researchers in the last uh, 15 years have reproduced his experiments on the brain. He used... Uh, ox brains, ox big brain animals, it, yeah. to see how far you could see, trace the passage of the nerves and the, all the intricacies of the brain in that big animal. And what they've shown is that he can see tiny things which most people would not be able to see with the naked eye, and certainly not in the uh, conditions of lighting that he would have then.
0: Can you give us a swift but complete notion of his, the range of his writings, Vivian? I feel like saying you're a starter for ten.
1: Well, this will be a starter of a hundred, because they, no, no, they, range, 10, they range from logic to a dictionary of ancient Attic comedy, which he says is important if you want to understand what Hippocrates wrote, because Hippocrates uses ordinary words... And comedians need ordinary words for their audience to understand them. We have those. We have anatomy. We have physiology. We have books on uh, huge books of commentary on Hippocrates. We've got pharmacology. We've got books on diet. We've got books on on uh, introductions to how to take the pulse. It's almost anything you can think of except, really, women's medicine.
0: And he he thought that the philosophy and language and medicine were deeply interconnected, didn't he? He had the mind and body very interconnected.
1: For him, mind and body are
0: absolutely interconnected.
1: And one of his great claims is that he can trace stress diseases. He can understand what happens to you when you begin to show signs of weakness when you're under tension, having to give a public performance or appear in court, or if your relative has died. This can stress and it affects your body. Equally, when you're standing on the top of a hill and looking over the edge, that is why your, your legs begin to tremble, and there's this close connection between mind and body, which you can also show with anatomy.
0: Uh, Helen, uh, one of his better-known works is called On Prognosis. Helen King, can you tell us about that?
2: Certainly. I just want to add one thing to Vivian's comment there about his books, because On Prognosis is actually a book about prognosis, as in what's going to happen next in a disease. And that's what the ancient medics found interesting. Not diagnosis, not giving it a name. It's what's going to happen next. And for Galen, what's going to happen next is very important, because if he can say to someone... Yes, I know at the moment you're feeling okay, but around about the fourth hour of the day tomorrow you're going to have another moment of seizure. Then this is because this is what's happening to you. And then you get to that hour and you have the seizure. Wow, Galen's the doctor. And he talks about how people in Rome called him wonder worker or miracle worker, and people were even suggesting that perhaps he got some sort of weird magical powers because his ability to prognose was so great. And that's how he makes his reputation. So in prognosis, he tells you the stories, the best stories, as Caroline's already said, about the elite patients he treats. What you get a clear sense of there is Galen as moving socially through using his connections. So he starts off with people who come from Pergamum to Rome, and so they're fellow Pergamene citizens in Rome like him. And then, because when he treats one of them, Eudemus, um, a guy from Syria called Flavius Boethus, an ex-consul, so a high-ranking Roman citizen, happens to come and visit and witnesses Galen saying what's going to happen next and then witnesses that it does happen. Boethus then thinks this is a great guy and has Galen in to treat his wife and his son. So you can see the way that the social connections are happening. So really, in On Prognosis, there's only one case where he talks about the cure, the actual things Galen did, Mostly, it's about how he said what was going to happen next,
0: Caroline Petit, can you describe his approach to treating an individual patient? We've had a bit already from Helen, but there's anything more to say about that
3: uh yes what's remarkable about Galen's approach is um his his deep awareness of how each patient is different um so uh Galen is sometimes described as a dogmatic sort of physician, um but that's uh, sort of. Retrospective illusion due to the the way uh, he was interpreted in a, in a later centuries. In fact, um, Galen is very keen on observation, as Vivian said, and he will observe every possible sign uh, on the patient, but also in his environment. Uh, he will make the patient talk, which is extremely important in his uh, in his approach, the the dialogue with the patient, and uh, and he will this way reconstruct. Um, in the In the closest possible way, w- what happened to the patient
0: now we 've got to turn to his massive influence and legacy we 're talking about someone who is still some of his medicine being taken today. He was massively important in the Roman world, in the Arab world, in the medieval world, right into the Renaissance, even people who are refuting him took on board his style, took on board a lot of what he did, so we've got to get a, some sort of grip on that. Helen, so he died around 2000... Two, sorry, he died around 215 AD. What was his status then, before we move on?
2: It was already high. He talks about moving down to the bookseller's quarter in Rome and seeing someone selling a book called The Doctor by Galen, And he thinks that's a bit strange. And another potential book purchaser goes up and has a look at it, reads the first two lines out loud and says, hmm, that's not Galen. And Galen's delighted by that. So people are already passing things off as by Galen because his name's got the power, but people can spot the real Galen. He likes that. Within a few years after his death, we get papyri from Egypt copying out pieces of his texts. So it's spreading. And the way that Galen's work spread is that he has things written maybe for a friend or a patron, or someone will take shorthand notes at one of his demonstrations and then write them up. He'll give these to people. They'll then have them copied to give to their friends. They'll leave them to their heirs in their wills. So stuff is already happening in his lifetime. It's spreading.
0: So we're talking about, let's, let's, talk, let's go through the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century. Go. He's, is, his, is his reputation growing then? Yes. Is he steady? He's still, as it were, the man of medicine to turn to and to learn from.
2: Yes, he becomes the man very quickly. And he then moves into being on the syllabus of medical schools in Alexandria. By the time you get to the Middle Ages medical education in the...
0: You're ahead of me I'm ahead
2: of you. Okay, I'll come back to that later. (laughs) But in the
0: ancient world, it's a steady build-up. It's a
2: steady build-up, yes.
0: Are there any sort of Galen satellite persons who...
2: Not really. That's what's most interesting, I think. Um, There are no Galen pupils. We hear about him talking about teaching, and he writes simplified versions of some of his books, like Bones for Beginners, implying that there are people who are beginners. We hear vaguely about the people with him. We assume that they're pupils, but we don't really know. There's no... Galen disciple who goes out and spreads the word.
0: That's odd, isn't it? Because when you look odd. at the people he admired, Plato, Aristotle, mm. um, they all had academies. They
2: absolutely their,
0: their pupils went forward, but yeah. not his. No. Can you think of a particular reason for that?
2: Not at all. I, I'm utterly baffled. i be interested to know if anyone else in the room has got a theory on that. Maybe, maybe
0: I want to answer that, but uh, I'd like. Do you want to out before going to the Arab world? Why do you think it didn't appear? Well, the
1: the, the problem with Galen is he wrote too much. Yes. (laughs) And the first problem is how to deal with 350 books, which cost a lot of money, and the answer is you forget most of them. And gradually his reputation grew and he subsumed other names, other writers under his works, and by the time we get to 500 AD, we have a short syllabus of theoretical texts telling you the theory of medicine. And they are studied in Alexandria. These are Galen's texts. These are Galen's texts. Yeah. And they're studied in Alexandria. They're taken over into Syriac. That's the language of the Christians of the Near East. And from then in into the Arab world with the Arab conquests. And in the ninth century, the caliph and his court seem to have developed a passion for Galen and translate as much of Galen as they can find.
0: Now, that is a key point, because these great uh, Arab scholars, philosophers and people interested in medicine, a, a great intellectual elite, really took him to their hearts and minds, did they? Why were they so uh, entranced by him? I think because he gave them a new model. He gave them a model that fitted
1: a new type of education he emphasised the need for the doctor to be a thinking philosopher, a logician. And it's no coincidence that many of the great Arab names are also famous as logicians, philosophers. Razi's, Averroes, Maimonides are all famous as philosophers and doctors. So he gave them a model, and he also did seem to have far more to say than any existing Arabic author. And so they go back to these huge books, which they want to translate as containing the medical wisdom of the past. They have the short syllabus, which becomes the basis for teaching, 16 or 20 books, depending on how you term them. And these books are then translated quite early in the 11th, 12th century, into Latin, and they come into the universities, in the new universities in Western Europe, which are, in a sense, founded as theoretical institutions.
0: So you have Greek, Syriac, Um, Arabic, Latin. Latin. Um, Caroline Petit, do you want to talk about the medieval world, Galen in the medieval world?
3: Oh, well, uh, in the medieval world, you would have to, to distinguish between places... Um, there is the Islamic tradition, there is the Byzantine tradition and and the Latin one in the West. Uh, And uh, um, at no moment in the medieval um, period um, can you find all of Galen's works or even half of them or 10% of them (laughs) in the same place, uh, except maybe in Baghdad in the 10th century or something. Um, So um, Galen's uh, works have become very difficult to get hold of and very few people
0: now 12th to 13th century
3: uh well you can say that already in the 13th century in byzantium it's really difficult to find works by galen uh, in greek very few manuscripts are around in the west it's even worse because you rely on latin translations from the arabic or from the greek and very few of them are actually around. So Galen is read by only a small minority of people, and that's something that's going to change in the Renaissance.
0: Oh, dear, we're at the Renaissance, and we haven't got really enough time to do it justice. Oh, dear. (laughs) Uh, Helen, can you just... uh, Let's put it bluntly. In the Renaissance, Galen ran up against two people who... uh, didn't attack, but undermined his authority. It was Vesalius and there was Harvey. Yes. It was the anatomy of Vesalius and the circulation of the blood by Harvey. Is that right? Yes, I think
2: that's and right. And you just
0: developed that, little okay. bit? Okay, please.
2: Well, Vesalius is interesting because he, he translated Galen, he knew Galen really well, but from his own hands-on dissections of the body, because dissections back in the Western medical curriculum by the 15th century, from his own hands-on dissection, Vesalius keeps finding bits that don't seem to work. So hang on a minute, this must come from animals, this is only found in this type of beast, this is what happens in the kidneys of an ape, not in the kidneys of a human. He starts to realise that, so he says famously he's found over 200 errors in Galen, and that Galen was, quote, deceived by his monkeys, which is a wonderful quote, because Galen did a lot on monkeys. Now, of course, Galen would love to have done a human dissection, I'm sure. He always took advantage when he got a nasty wound in a gladiator, but he couldn't.
0: But then there's the circulation of the blood. Yes. The four humours depending on the blood being static almost yes. in different places in the body. And Harvey said it, it circles. So wherever you took, you got the same sort of blood. Yes. And that kiboshed the four humours.
2: Well, yes, it does, except that it's such a wonderful image that yeah, wonderful it doesn't go away. <laughs> Yeah, but
0: it (laughs) isn't true.
1: And, and of course, Harvey thought his circulation of the blood proved the truth of Galenic therapy because it explained better than Galen's theory how drugs work. And in terms of therapy, Galenic therapy with vegetable drugs lasted well into the 19th century because there was very little to put in its place. And the idea of examining the patient in the way that Galen uh, insists on became the foundation for 17th, 18th, indeed early 19th century patient uh, doctors. So his, his therapeutic methods survive the anatomy, survive his physiology, and his model is still there in the present in parts of the Islamic world as the, the the theoretical philosophical doctor who looks at you as an individual
0: and it has to be said that Vesalius as one of them, uh, one of those who, as it were, undermined him, played him with the greatest respect adopted a lot of his, adopted his style, adopted his methods, and he was held in awe until until uh, until beyond the Renaissance. Oh, dear, we have to go now. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, Carolyn Petit, uh, Helen King and Vivian Notton. And next week we're going to talk about the Book of Common Prayer and its Magnificent Language, 1549. Thanks for listening.
2: There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash Radio (laughs) 4.
0: Podcast lovers, rejoice. Meet Pocketcast, your new favorite podcast app for listening, search, and discovery. Our beautifully designed app gives you more control, makes it easier to find and organize podcasts, and offers powerful tools to customize listening. To hear all your favorite shows, download our free app at PocketCast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores.